Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 has a nickname. It's often called the Little Apocalypse. After spending a dozen chapters judging the nations of his day, Isaiah sees into the distant future. And he sees God's judgment in the world's final days. These chapters parallel the earth-rocking events that we read about in Revelation 6 through 19. You see, Isaiah 24 through 27 foresees the time that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Today, man is having his way, getting his say. Today is the day of man. But there is a period of time at the end of the age when the Lord has his say and the Lord gets his way. The Lord will speak into human affairs. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. It includes the rod of the the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and a rampage of plagues, and the return of Jesus. And it culminates with the reign of God's kingdom. Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 deal with the day of the Lord, and they are breathtaking chapters. Recall the ominous warning, the intro to this section in chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Pretty ominous indeed. Verse 2 then tells us that God's judgment doesn't discriminate. Then as you go through chapter 24, you discover that Isaiah compares the earth to a drunken man even to a hammock, reeling back and forth. It gets knocked off its hinges. Now in chapter 25, the emphasis is placed on how God will protect His people throughout this wicked world's painful ending. Chapter 25 begins, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Now notice, While God is on His righteous rampage, His praise rises up from His people. In other words, no one questions God's fairness. No one criticizes His harshness. Chapter 24 has made it clear the reasons for His judgment. Go back to verses 4 and 5. We're told of a prideful people who have defied God's boundaries, who have changed and doctored his laws. In fact, if God doesn't judge, that would be reason to question his righteousness. You see, you need to understand that for millenniums now, the earth below and the heart of God above has been tortured by the recklessness and the wickedness of fallen human beings. God's punishment of sin is a welcome relief According to chapter 25, it is a reason for God's people to praise Him. And notice Isaiah refers to God's judgments here as wonderful things. Don't always think of it that way, do we? But it is. And then he adds, your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. God's law through ancient times. God's law timelessly. You know, has come down to us. They're true. They're faithful. They never fail. His laws are as contemporary and as relevant today as the morning news. This is why if you ignore God's word, if you twist God's word, you do so at your own peril. God will bring judgment on those who distort his word. I love Psalm 116 verse 11. There David cries out, I said in my haste, all men are liars. He said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. One old saint responded, I've now had a lot of time to think it over. And I still agree with David. You know, men lie and deceive, but God is faithful and true. And then he says in verse 2, For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. 
For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Judgment has come upon the earth, but God has been a shade and a shelter to his people. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces. A feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. While God's judgment rains down on the earth, God is going to serve up a feast in the mountain of the Lord. We'll eat choice pieces. I hate it when you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and you, you want to change your order, you want all white meat, they charge you extra. You notice that. If you want... You know, two breasts instead of a, a, a wing and a, and a drumstick or whatever it is. They always charge you extra to get to choice pieces. But here God is going to serve up a feast. And all he's going to serve are the choice pieces. The prime cuts. No hamburger at the Lord's table. No way. It's only prime rib and sirloin. You know, Revelation describes two very different scenes in the last days. On earth. Terrible plagues wreak havoc, but in heaven, God throws a party. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will greet His church, the church that's been raptured. And He'll throw a party to welcome His bride. He'll service the choice pieces. And notice what else is on God's party menu. He says, fat things full of marrow. You know, I recently read where bone marrow, the spongy tissue in the center of the bone... It's a great source of protein, and it's also high in monosaturated fat, which helps reduce the risks of heart disease. Isn't it interesting? It's just no surprise to those of us who know our loving God that when His kingdom comes, He feeds His people not only foods that taste delicious, but that are also good for you. In fact, all that God does and commands is good for us. Well, he says in verse 7, And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. This is the problem in the world today. Satan has cast a veil, a spiritual blindness over the eyes of men and nations. It's only when Jesus returns that this satanic covering will be removed and people will see unhindered. Here again, Isaiah speaks of how God will treat His people in the kingdom age. He says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. What a day that'll be. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, Paul quotes the first half of this verse. And then in Revelation 21, verse 4, John quotes the second half. Both verses speak of Messiah's ultimate triumph over sin and its consequences. But here's what's amazing about this, I think. Both apostles, New Testament apostles, they look into the future through the eyes of a prophet who lived 700 years prior to them. I think here's the lesson. The key to understanding the future is often tucked away in the history of the past. This is why, my friend, the Old Testament and Hebrew history and prophets like Isaiah are so important for us to study. Well, Isaiah also says of Jesus, the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And through the cross of Jesus, God has taken away our rebuke. Our punishment has ended. Judgment was satisfied. Verse 9, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Men have been waiting for millenniums for this salvation, for the fulfillment of the kingdom, for God's kingdom to come to earth and God's will to be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Finally, that day has come and God's people will praise him. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. All tears have been wiped away from their eyes. You know, these are God's promises to us. But we need to understand that inheriting these promises requires patience. You know, we live 
in the meantime, in the in-between time. We live between a promise given and a promise received. Thus, every Christian needs patience. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Here's a great definition I ran across this past week. Patience is letting your motor idle while you feel like stripping the gears. Tough to be patient, isn't it? You know the problem with patience? It requires patience. That's its problem. Famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he noted that there were three requirements for any missionary endeavor. He said, patience, patience, and patience. You know, we all are living in the meantime, in the in-between time, between a promise given and a promise received. That's where most of the Christian life gets lived. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus? He took Jesus to a high mountain, and he offered him the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just bow down to Satan. Ironically, Jesus already owned the kingdoms of the world. What was the temptation there? It was to get them now. It was to get them without going to the cross, without having to experience the agony and suffering of the cross. Jesus, you can have it now. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to wait. You see, the Christian life is like a giant waiting room. We're all praying and we're all hoping and we're all waiting. Ultimately, our healing will come, but sometimes there's a wait. I like what author Henrietta Myers once said, the purposes of God may sometimes seem delayed, but they are never abandoned. Well, chapter 25 closes with a judgment against Moab. He says, For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab will be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hand, the refuse heap, that's the straw trampled for the refuse heap, that's like the kitty litter. You know, you, you put down the kitty litter, to, to cover up the refuse or to deal with, you get it? That's the straw. He says, and he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. Notice God's hand is protecting Zion, Jerusalem. The Temple Mount. Moab is being trampled under God's feet. And so here's your choice. What would you prefer? You want to be in His hands? Or do you want to be under His feet? I want to be in His hands. Well, chapter 26 tells us in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Here's one of the most beautiful verses in all the scriptures. God promises perfect peace to a stayed mind, to a fixed faith. This phrase, perfect peace, it's a beautiful phrase. It's literally... Shalom, shalom. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it's a double shalom. Shalom, shalom. It's a double peace. In essence, it's peace to the nth degree. This is what God promises to the mind that stayed on Him. Author F.B. Meyer comments, It's your privilege to live inside the double doors of God's loving care. He says to you, peace, peace. If one assurance is not enough, He'll follow it with a second and a third. And how does one experience this peace, peace? Not just for a moment, mind you, but how do you stay there? How do you walk in this peace? Well, it's a matter of the mind. It's to those whose mind is stayed on God. It's a matter of the mind. It's not an issue of our emotions or our heart or even our willpower. But it's where we place our minds. Are our minds stayed or parked on God? Are we leaning our thoughts toward Jesus? Have you chosen to 
park your mind in the things of God. You see, in order to keep this perfect peace, you have to refuse to indulge in the what-ifs. You know about those what-ifs? They can torture you. The what-ifs. You've got to muffle the doubts. You've got to stop entertaining the vain speculations. You've got to park or anchor your mind on God. You know, always remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. Sometimes we think it is, but it's not. Not perfect peace. Peace is the poise and confidence in the midst of conflict. In fact, there's a painting. It's entitled Peace. It's a seascape. Imagine this in your mind. The waves are crashing. The storm is raging on the surf. It's anything but peaceful. And yet in the corner of the painting, tucked away under a rock, is a tiny little bird totally at rest. God gives us peace in the midst of the storm. You can be mindful of the storm, but peace is impossible when your mind is stayed or fixed on the storm. We've got to anchor or park our minds in God and in His Word. Verse 4 tells us, Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Yah, or short for Yahweh. The Hebrew phrase here, everlasting strength, it's literally rock of ages. Here's where the inspiration came for the hymn by the same name, Rock of Ages. Yahweh, Lord of all the earth. He never weathers. He never withers. He never wears out. He's a shelter. He's a hiding place for His people. He is the Rock of Ages. He says, For He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Recall in the Sermon on the Mount, remember the third beatitude, who inherits the earth? Do you remember? The meek, right? Not the high and mighty. They occupy it for a time, but Jesus exalts and empowers the humble to eventually rise up and rule the earth. Verse 7 The way of the just is uprightness, almost upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Notice, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he does not lean toward righteousness. here's, Here's a characteristic of an unrepentant man. God's grace gives him another chance, yet he doesn't take advantage of it. Have you noticed people? who don't take advantage of God's grace. Men don't always gravitate toward grace. God's grace can be resisted. Pride can harden a man's heart against God's grace. Verse 11, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. Notice the accomplishments of God's people are always the result of God's work on them and in them and through them. He says, you have done all our works in us. O Lord, our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, But by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Israel of old was ruled over foreign powers, but God will ultimately defeat them. He says, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. And here Isaiah is speaking of God's blessings to the nation Israel. You remember when God called Abraham, he promised him all of the land from the Euphrates River all the way to the Nile. 
Israel has never fully ruled over all of her territory, but one day she will. You know, the Arabs are going to be in for a shock. Rather than drive Israel into the sea, one day Israel will rule over all their lands. The whole Middle East will be Israeli. God has not replaced Israel with the church. Don't let anybody tell you that. All God's promises to Israel will one day be literally fulfilled. But a purging first awaits God's people. Verse 16. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. As the time of the end gets near, Israel will be gripped with severe pains, severe trials. A chastening will take place. Before God's kingdom comes, a time of trouble is ahead for Israel. God will chasten or discipline His people. And then He says, Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Notice this, verse 19. Tucked away right here in the heart of the Old Testament is an amazing New Testament truth. You know, it's been said, the New Testament is in the old concealed, whereas the Old Testament is in the new revealed. Eyes on the future are often found in the wisdom of the past. And here's a great example. Here is a statement of our identification in Christ. Spiritually, we died with Jesus. We've been crucified with Him. Why? So that we could be raised together with Him. So that we can live His resurrection life even now. Romans 6 verse 5 applies this truth. Paul says, If we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is what Isaiah said, Your dead shall live together with my dead body, they shall arise. And then Isaiah celebrates. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For you, your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. You know, the New Testament calls the risen Lord Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. We then are the remainder of the harvest. Jesus paved the way for us to be resurrected as well. I want you to notice now the progression in this chapter. Grace is shown. God works in His people. He even chastens His people. Then they die and rise again with Him. And so, in a New Testament sense, what comes next? Is there an additional hope? What's the next thing we're looking for? It's the rapture. It's the fact, it's the day that Jesus comes back and snatches us away to be with Him. We've been promised an escape from the tribulation that God is going to send on this wicked world. And Isaiah's eyes see clearly this future event in the next few verses. Verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Notice, Isaiah invites God's people to escape these coming judgments. You see, God's desire in the end times is to punish evildoers, not His own people. And so He takes His people, us, out of, his, out of harm's way. Rather than subject us to friendly fire, God gets us out of here. He, he protects us. He takes us into a secret chamber. Remember, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions, many chambers, as Isaiah puts it. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now here, Isaiah sees the invitation. Jesus invites us to come. 
You know, when you read Revelation 6 through 19, the cataclysms that God hurls toward the earth in the great tribulation, they're so devastating. They're so comprehensive that there will be no hiding place. No corner of the planet will be safe. The only refuge will be heaven itself. And this is why, before God's judgment comes down, God's church goes up. Our sin has already been judged. On the cross of Jesus, there's no need for us to be judged again. This is why true believers aren't looking for judgment. We're looking for Jesus. But as the bride of Christ spends those last seven years behind closed doors, in her chambers, with her groom, an avalanche of horror will fall on planet earth. Verse 21 tells us, For behold, the Lord comes out of His place. After all, it's the day of the Lord. The Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Chapter 27. In that day, the Lord, with His severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. There was once a little old lady in the church who had the reputation of never saying a bad word about anyone. One day, though, she was challenged. Someone asked her, what, well, what do you think about the devil? I mean, surely she wouldn't have a nice word to say about the devil. Finally, she thought for a few moments and she said, well, I guess we have to admire his persistence. And that's true. The devil is persistent from the opening act of creation until the final curtain closes. Satan remains the chief nemesis of God's plans. And here he's called Leviathan, that twisted serpent. You remember, this is how Satan appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As a serpent. In fact, Revelation 12, verse 9, calls him that great dragon, that serpent of old. When Revelation 13 opens and speaks of the Antichrist, Satan's agent in the last days, he's seen rising from where? From the sea. He's a beast rising from the sea. Here Satan is depicted as that reptile in the sea. You know, in the Bible, the sea is associated with evil. You can't drink salt water. The sea is unpredictable. You remember when Jesus confronted a rowdy storm at sea? You remember what he did to it? He rebuked it as if it had been inspired by a demon. In the new heaven and new earth, it's interesting, there will be no more sea. Here Satan slithers among the vast sea of sinful humanity. Suddenly he raises his twisted head. You know, the whole story of the Bible is the story of a battle between God and this serpent. It's interesting, you can track the appearances of Leviathan, Job 26, Psalm 74, Psalm 89, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, record these various skirmishes. The climax, though, is in Revelation 12, when the twisted serpent becomes the fleeing serpent. Satan gets booted out of heaven. And ultimately defeated. There, Genesis 3 verse 15 is finally fulfilled. You remember on the cross, the serpent inflicted Jesus with a heel bruise. But when Jesus returns, he will crush the serpent's head. Well, verse 2 tells us, In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Israel was God's vineyard. And here he speaks of God's care over Israel. Back in chapter 5, God uses same imagery. He continues, Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Notice what God says here. He says, Fury is not in me. We read about all these judgments that God is pouring out on the earth. And yet, he doesn't judge the earth out of some fury out of his own uh, insecurities or his own anger. Understand, when God judges, his emotions 
are not what we think they would be because his emotions are not what our emotions would be. You know, if I were judging the earth, I I would be thinking things like, I'm going to show them. I'm going to rub their nose in it. I mean, that's the kind of thoughts I would have. But God isn't insecure. God never has to show anyone anything. And understand this. God never stops loving the people that he judges. Now, he has to judge them. Because he cares about justice and righteousness. And he cares about their humility and them accepting the truth. Sadly, those that refuse to humble themselves and accept the truth, God has to humble them. But God still loves everyone that he judges. Verse 5, Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me, rather than God take hold of you in his anger. How much better for you to take hold of God by faith. And then he says, Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Here God reveals his ultimate intentions for his people Israel. He will prosper the nation. And and this prophecy is already being fulfilled even in our day. You know that Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. If you go with us to Israel you see this everywhere. Trees are growing, fields are blossoming. Trees are budding. It's amazing. Today, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, is the size of the state of New Jersey. Very small country. In fact, it's one-seventh the size of the state of Georgia. And yet, it's the Middle East's largest agricultural producer. It's one of Europe's leading citrus providers. Literally, as Isaiah said, Israel is filling the world with fruit. Verse 7. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. God will judge Israel, but not in the same way that he judges other nations. There will be a different judgment upon Israel. Therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones. That are beaten to dust. Wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. God is going to purge Israel of all traces of idolatry. He says yet the fortified city will be desolate. The habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them shall show them no favor. Before Jesus returns, Israel will be the scourge of the earth. Their enemies will show them no pity. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, from the Euphrates to the Nile. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. When Israel reaches the brink of annihilation and is scattered around the globe, God will defeat the foe and He will call His people home. Here's what Isaiah foresees. He sees a final exodus of Jews returning to the land. You know, today, six million Jews live in Israel. Out of a worldwide population of 13 to 14 million. In fact, more Jews today live in America than in Israel. Only about 40% of world Jewry is actually uh, living in Israel. And yet the Jewish prophets, Isaiah and others, predict that in the last days they'll stream home. They'll come back to the land. And of course this is happening today. Well chapter 28 begins a new section of Isaiah. Six woes or warnings are announced 
on the southern Hebrew kingdom of Judah. And again, it's a blend of both local and future judgments. Think of it this way. All God's judgments are warm-ups. They're all precursors of that final judgment that will happen in the end. Anytime God judges someone locally, it's really a shot across the bow. It's a wake-up call. God is hoping that man repents so that he'll be spared the final end-all judgment. Well, verse 1 begins, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Ephraim, or the hills of Samaria, were known for their plush, fertile, verdant valleys. Today, this is West Bank territory. This is Palestinian territory. This past year, we visited Shiloh, which happens to be in the hills of Ephraim. It's a beautiful, it's a lush, it's a fertile land. And it's where God's people grew their grapes and made their wine, which became their nemesis. Because here Isaiah says, you have become overcome with wine. Now let me say up front, the Bible never advocates absolute prohibition. While on earth, Jesus turned water into wine. It was fermented wine. The host of the party made that comment. Jesus drank wine. Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine or a can of beer per se with your meal. The Bible allows for alcoholic consumption in moderation. But what the Bible does prohibit is drunkenness. Not everyone is able to drink in moderation. And if you can't stop with one glass of wine or one can of beer, then you shouldn't drink at all. Any small sip becomes a sin for you. If you're overcome when you drink, then it's a sin. And overcome doesn't mean fall down sloppy drunk. I mean, overcome means that if your judgment is impaired, if you've gotten a little fuzzy, if you're under the alcohol's control, then you're overcome and it's a sin. You see, God wants you dominated by the Holy Spirit, not distilled spirits. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If your life is under the power of alcohol, in other words, if you're always thinking about it, if you're always plotting your next opportunity to get a drink, if you're sneaking around covering up its hold on your life, then you've been overcome. I know my own personality, <laughs> and I tend to be a compulsive person, and this is one reason why I don't drink at all. I just don't want to take the chance. I don't want to take the chance of becoming addicted. And as Isaiah says, overcome with wine. Well, verse 2 tells us, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of many waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. You know, I'll never forget the hospital visit that I made to a man who was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. His sister called me and asked me to go and visit him. This guy was jaundiced. Yellow as he could be, his skin was an ashen tone, he was shriveled as a prune, his eyes were sunk back in his head. But you know, after a few minutes, he prayed to receive Christ. It was a deathbed conversion, and I left rejoicing. He died shortly thereafter, and we had his funeral, and it was so sad. 
three people showed up at this man's funeral. I'm hoping at least three people show up at my funeral. Three people showed up at his funeral. His mom, his sister, and her daughter, who I know was made to come by the daughter. So, I mean, there were two willing people that showed up at his funeral. You remember that, James? James sang, and, and James and Ann Benton sang the music there at the funeral. I mean, I'm, I was thinking the whole time, how do you live 35 years on this earth And in the end, nobody cares whether you live or you die. Only three people show up to your funeral. How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. Alcohol wasted this man's life. It alienated everyone around him. It it took a possible, it, it spoiled his potentials. It took what could have been a great life and it ruined it. You see, a life overcome with alcohol, Isaiah says, is like a fading flower. It's a life trampled underfoot. He says, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. For a spirit of, spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. The Lord could have been their glory and their strength. But instead we're told they erred because of alcohol. And how many poor people do we know have erred because of alcohol? It was Shakespeare who said, O thou invisible spirit of wine, if thou hast no name to be known by, let us call thee devil. You see, alcohol is a depressant. It depresses your decision-making abilities. It depresses your inhibitions. It depresses your faculties. It depresses your emotions. It depresses your balance. It depresses your judgment. It depresses your clarity. It is a depressant. You become less of a person under the influence of alcohol. Isn't it interesting? The Holy Spirit does just the opposite. He enlarges our capacities. He even gives us supernatural gifts and capacities. Alcohol takes its toll not only on individuals, but also on society at large. A researcher at Columbia University recently wrote, Contrary to conventional wisdom and popular myth, alcohol is more tightly linked with more violent crimes than crack, cocaine, heroin, or any other illegal drug. Realize 16,000 people die every year on Americans' roads due to alcohol-related accidents. The FBI says that over half of all rapes involve alcohol. And yet, why is it our culture glorifies the use of alcohol? Did you know that by the time a child turns 18 years old, they will have watched over 100,000 beer commercials? But here's what they don't see. Verse 8. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. There you go. There you have it. That's the commercial they need to see. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. You know the Hollywood drink, drunk. He's the life of the party. He's walking around with a lampshade on his head. He's Mr. Popular, making everybody laugh. Seldom do you see him with his head in the toilet, throwing his guts out. That's the truth of it right there. That's the commercials need to be running on television. Isaiah says that drunkenness was rampant in Judah. He says even the priests and the prophets had erred through intoxicating drink. And Isaiah is concerned, verse 9, Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? 
Those just drawn from the breast? I mean, people were so drunk, no one was studying God's word. No one could even teach the word. You know, who's left to teach? Who's not drunk? The little kids? Alcohol had killed all spiritual passion and love for God. The people had become numb. Verse 10. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. He's saying you need your faculties. You need your mental prowess in order to teach the Scripture and understand the Scripture. Because the way you understand it is precept upon precept, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. To understand the Bible, it requires a systematic study. You see, now here's how you grow spiritually. You engage your mind with all its faculties. You can't be clouded. You study line by line, verse by verse, thought by thought, chapter by chapter. You take a systematic, methodical approach to studying through the Scripture. And yet, it's amazing how few churches do it. You know, here's today's problem. We live in a presto society. I mean, everything's instant. Fast food, drive-through banking, microwaves, ATMs, emails, instant messaging. I mean, it's all at our fingertips. We don't even have to wait on photos to be developed. And we want the same approach to our spiritual development. I hate to burst your bubble, but it just doesn't exist. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There are no shortcuts. Your faith grows when you study God's word. And you do that precept upon precept, line upon line. George Mueller used to say, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. And Isaiah tells us how God's word should be studied. Again, line upon line, precept upon precept. You take a text and you understand it in its context. You know, if I wanted a bigger crowd on Sunday nights, I would be advertising the seven steps to financial freedom. I'd pack them in. Winning over worry. We'd have a big billboard up on 78. Keeping romance alive. Come this Sunday night. Problem is, that kind of stuff is, is not how you build a solid Christian life. You, you do it line upon line, precept upon precept, verse by verse. And sadly, there's not a lot of appetite today for taking a book of the Bible and just plowing through it chapter by chapter. Except for you good folks. Isaiah even says this. He says, here a little there a little. You know, folks even like nice headings and, and, and sort of topical arrangements of the Scripture. But, but understand, that's not how God's organized the Bible. Understand the way your Bible's constructed. There, there's no accident here. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures and its arrangement. You know, military experts tell you that in wartime communications... They try to spread the important information across the entire bandwidth of the signal. They, they spread it out all the way across the signal. Why? Just in case one segment gets intercepted, the important message can still get through. This is what God has done in the Bible. Rather than a section on the Trinity, and then a section on salvation, and then a section on eschatology... You know, what would happen if, if we lost the first part of it? We had critical information would be totally lost. No, God has taken it and he spread out all the major doctrines over all 66 books. So that if, God forbid, any one part of your Bible was missing, you could still get the whole message because it's been spread out. God has taken his truth and spread it throughout the whole book. Here a little, there a little. And then he says in verse 11, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. Now, Isaiah is being sarcastic. The Jews were too drunk to study God's word appropriately. And so God will speak to them through a foreign army 
who will invade their land and talk to them in another language. So that the unknown tongues spoken of here was a sign of judgment on God's people. Now bring this up because Paul, and I might add very cleverly, Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. And he interjects it into his discussion on the gift of tongues. And he's explaining to the Corinthians that the spiritual gift of tongues is not for the public assembly of the church. Why? Because it's a sign of judgment. And to prove it, he goes back and he quotes Isaiah. And he applies this to the Corinthians by saying that if an unbeliever comes into your group and hears you speaking in some strange language, they might freak out, think that they'll never get close to God, and run out as a sign of judgment against them. It'll scare them away. Thus, he says, this is why the gift of tongues should be reserved for small groups of informed believers within the church. It's just interesting how a verse from Isaiah becomes a very important player in Paul's discussion on the gift of tongues. He continues the thought in verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. Oh boy, both God's word and the gifts of God's spirit are reason to cause God's people to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. In other words, to the haughty, to the intellectual crowd, this precept upon precept, it was just too simple an approach. It was beneath them. And because of their pride and stubbornness, it became a stumbling block to them. It caused them to fall. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. Isaiah could be talking about a protection treaty the Jewish king had struck with Egypt. But Bible teachers also see in verse 14 a future treaty. You know, Daniel chapter 9 teaches that the final seven years of great tribulation begins when Israel signs a covenant or a treaty with the Antichrist. If that covenant is the same as this one, here it's called a covenant with death. It's their treaty with Sheol or their treaty with hell. You know, it's really sad. Over the last 40 years, Israel has signed numerous treaties. And sadly, that the, Jew, sadly the Jews today are so desperate for peace that eventually they'll even sign a covenant with hell. Here Isaiah mentions it. In the beginning, this treaty gives a false confidence. They say, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Sadly, the Jews will act hastily in the last days. They'll trust in this Antichrist. They'll sign this covenant with hell. But he will betray them. And yet, through their mistakes, the Jews will learn the identity of the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation. And who is that? Jesus is the precious stone. Jesus is the foundation who's endured the stress test. He's the tried stone on which they can build. Jesus is also our rock. You remember 1 Peter 2 verse 6 applies this passage we just read in Isaiah to Jesus. He is the cornerstone on which all believers, us living stones, can rest and build our lives. And then he says also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. 
The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Again, a flood is a biblical idiom for an invading army. So when you read about an overflowing scourge, you're you're reading about an army invading the land. He says, your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that at the midpoint of the great tribulation, the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel. He will claim to be God. He will defile the temple. He'll demand that the world worship him. He'll even control the buying and the selling in order to blackmail men into worship. Scripture calls this event the abomination of desolation. And Satan's brazen power grab causes God to say enough is enough. Revelation 12 tells us it's at that point that God kicks Satan out of heaven. And realizing that his days are numbered, the devil sets out to attack God's kids, Israel. He wants to annihilate Israel. And a final holocaust begins. Isaiah calls it here the overflowing scourge that passes through. You know, talk to an Israeli today and they'll tell you never again. Never again will the Jews allow another holocaust. But sadly, there will be one more. Six million Jews died in German death camps. Today, six million Jews live in Israel. And when the Antichrist unleashes his armies, many of them will perish. Verse 19. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Israel tried to feel secure in their covenant, but the bed was too short. The blanket was too small. They couldn't get comfortable. Finally, their partner revealed his true colors, and the Antichrist betrayed them. For the Lord will rise up at Mount, as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. That he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Perizim was a mountain about four miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was on the way from Jerusalem to Gibeon. And the reference here is to Joshua 10 and the battle of Beth Horon. You recall that battle. God did an unusual act. God tinkered somehow with the earth's rotation so that Joshua had additional daylight with which to defeat his enemies. Here Isaiah calls it an awesome work. I would agree. He calls it God's unusual act. God even rained down hailstones, we're told, on the enemy as they tried to escape. When Joshua took the land from the Canaanites, God employed unusual acts, celestial fireworks, to accomplish defeat and to defeat the enemies. It's interesting. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And when Jesus returns to take the land, just as Joshua took the land of old, Jesus will return to take the land, this time the whole earth. He also will do so with unusual acts and with awesome works. And cataclysmic judgments will be a part of his establishment of his kingdom on this earth. Verse 22, Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin? Cumin is a spice. It was sort of a leafy herb like a parsley. And scatter the cumin like the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place. In other words, the farmer doesn't just prepare forever. He eventually takes action. And likewise, God is one day going to take action. He doesn't just warn forever. 
There comes a point when God acts. He judges. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black common is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is it a cartwheel rolled over the common. But the black common is beaten out with a stick and the common with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. As a farmer knows how to beat out the leaves and beat out the wheat into into spice and food, so the Lord knows how to discipline. And he knows how to bring judgment. And he knows how to even bring judgment upon his own people, his own kids. In fact, the Bible tells us whom the Lord loves, he spanks. You know what I've discovered? You're never too old for a little divine spanking. When we need it, he does. It's because he loves us. And there we have Isaiah 24 through 28. Next week, let's go from 29. Oh, let's read up through maybe 31 or 32 for next week. Covering some ground here in Isaiah.